0: Hello, Bridgetown Podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end, and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church slash give.
1: John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brutal vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John said, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked them, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. So there's this uh, famous story about John Wesley who's a hero of mine. He started a revival in the city of London not too long ago during a time when the church was really sleepwalking. But this story has nothing to do with his leadership. It was a moment in his personal life that became infamous when one ordinary day a man comes up riding a horse toward Wesley in a hurry saying, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. And Wesley pauses, and as you can imagine, in a busy city like that, everyone with an earshot, their eyes suddenly fix on him, and he famously said, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. That is a true story that actually happened to a real Western person in a Western city, a lot like this one. Randy Alcorn writes, His reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality, rather it sprung from life's most basic reality, that God is the owner of all things, and we are simply his stewards. And that is an Advent story. It is a Christmas story. It is a prepare to recognize God in our midst story. So calling out in the wilderness, that is the title of a teaching series that's been carrying us through the four weeks of Advent. It's a phrase that's borrowed from the prophet Isaiah that is then repeated in all four gospels to describe John the Baptist. John's mission was to shine a spotlight on God enfleshed in the person of Jesus so that no one would miss him. You should recognize today's teaching text from a week ago. It is identical John, a messenger sent to help people recognize Creator disguised as creation, offers these basic instructions to the plentiful simplicity, to the tax collector's generosity, and to the soldier's justice. What should we do then? The eager crowds respond. Well, do you have an extra winter coat? And share your clothes with the poor. Do you have enough money for two lunches? Then get one for yourself and share the rest with someone else. Do you collect taxes for a living? Then stop getting rich off of tips and collect only what is necessary. Are you in the military? Then stop gaining a cushion by exploiting your power and learn contentment with your base salary. Every example John gives to those eager to recognize the Messiah has to do with money and possessions. How do you prepare for the way of Jesus? How do you recognize the greatly anticipated God, that the very people who supposedly were most ready to see him, most anticipating his arrival completely missed, right under their noses, share? Your money and possessions are rentals to be stewarded for the sake of others. You see, there's something about John Wesley shrugging off the loss of everything. There's something about the total absurdity of that that exposes the total absurdity of our great attachment to those very things. And there's something that's been cultivated within John Wesley by generosity that's readied him to see and hear and receive God more deeply than at least I have. And I would guess that I'm not the only one. So generosity, that is the big theme for today and is a subject that I'd really rather not talk about. Let me explain myself. Uh, The Christian church was the original grassroots movement. It was led by broken but healed people who had no credentials at all except their own transformed lives. Then it spread like wildfire, a a sociologic phenomenon no matter what you think of the truth claims. But by the 15th century, the church had become corrupted when they tried to raise money by charging penance and selling indulgences to the confessing. The original grassroots movement became stained by financial corruption and that stain set like red wine on a white dress. Financial privacy is also a pretty big deal today. Statistics show that America is among the least transparent countries when it comes to wealth. We don't publicize salaries and that sort of thing at the rate that other modern western nations do. The norm in our culture is you just don't talk about money, it's a private issue, it's not polite to bring up in public. I should say, you don't talk about your money. Other people's money, especially those who seem to have more of it than you and your view of their spending habits, that's fair game. But me, my habits of consumption and the way that I steward my resources, you don't get it. Don't touch that. So here is the equation that I feel as a Christian pastor. There's a history of financial corruption in uh, the Christian church, the church that I love and will give my life for, plus modern privacy and sensitivity around finances equals I don't like to talk about money. In fact, in my life as a Christian pastor, I've preached approximately 700 unique sermons. I calculated that this week. And I've preached exactly five of those sermons about financial generosity. That means a little over, one half of 1% of the time, I stand in front of of a room of eager people saying something like, what should we do then? And we look at the scriptures together. I go directly to a passage about material generosity. And maybe for you, that sounds about right. But for me, it stings with conviction. Because in the four gospels, Jesus talks about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. The preaching priorities of Jesus are the kingdom of God, money, and there's a big gap between two and three. Jesus talked about money three times more than he talked about love, and seven times more than he talked about prayer. He talked about money more than heaven, hell, or eternity. Jesus taught, or 17 of his 39 parables are about money. The scholarly estimate is that somewhere around 25% of Jesus' teaching is directly about material generosity. So to land at 0.5% of my teaching shows that I've clearly done some dancing with the text. So if we're gonna take Jesus seriously, we simply cannot sidestep this topic. If we're going to say that Jesus' priorities are our priorities, then we've gotta surrender the privacy uh, that we feel around material wealth. And if I'm going to say that Jesus' priorities are my priorities, I've gotta get beyond my comfort zone as a teacher and directly address that which Jesus directly addressed. So, if it's your first time here, then I ask you for grace because I am aware that when a Christian pastor stands on a stage wearing a pop star microphone and starts talking about money, they're dragging a whole lot of baggage in with them. And I'm not gonna ask you for the benefit of the doubt, you do not owe me that, but I don't wanna just jump in without you knowing that I both understand and personally feel the complexity of this topic. And if you're a part of this church family, then I need your forgiveness for choosing my comfort zone over Jesus' priorities. We should be addressing this more often and more directly than we do because Jesus addresses it more often and more directly than we do. And so I wanna invite you today to let your guard down and allow yourself to be confronted by Jesus' teaching around money and possessions without getting defensive. If you're trying to follow Jesus without regularly asking yourself, who is really Lord over my consumption, money, and possessions, you are fooling yourself. This is far too big a part of our lives to just treat like like it's some side issue that occasionally gets commented on. So today, we're gonna be journeying through the whole Bible, but I only have one point. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. So let's trace that one point from Genesis to Revelation through these four parts, foundations, servant Jesus, King Jesus, and then living in between. Here we go, so foundations, part one. Let's begin in Exodus. Most of us, when we think of the Exodus story, we tend to think of uh, burning bushes and 10 plagues and parting seas, and that's all in there. But I think the real drama starts when all of the major action sequences end. Uh, after all those memorable highlights, God is teaching his people what it means to rely on him as their provider. And he gives them food every day, manna and quail, or bread and meat. So the gluten-free vegetarians were just totally out of luck in the Exodus journey. Half of Portland would be asking Yahweh for substitutions. (laughs) Exodus 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Share your food with one another. That's the beginning of the family of God. Make sure that everyone has his or her basic needs met. That's the beginning of the image of God alive in a community. But it did not last long. Two verses later. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So some people were collecting more than they needed because what if God doesn't provide? What if the bread and meat doesn't come tomorrow morning? What if I don't have enough? So they started to store away extra in their tent, but by the time tomorrow morning rolled away, it had rotted and spoiled. Having food for tomorrow was not the main issue here. The main issue was that God gave them exactly what they needed. So to take more than I need to store away for tomorrow was to take what someone else needs for today. So God gave them food that expired overnight. He made saving impossible, why? Because he wanted to free their hearts to both trust him and to love one another. God freed their bodies through a series of miracles, but he freed their hearts by manna, by teaching them a new economy, one where my neighbor is my responsibility. And then as the story rolls forward, we eventually get to the edges of your field. This brings us to Leviticus chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So this was given to the people of God as a command. It is a law. Leave the edges of your property fruitful so that anyone who's wandering and hungry finds a meal at your place. Plant seeds and tend a portion of your land that you never intend to harvest. Your home should be structured financially as a place of provision for the wanderer. And it gets a whole lot more interesting when God explains the logic beneath this law. So in Deuteronomy 24, the same commands are repeated nearly verbatim, but God frames it this way. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I have commanded you to do this. And then the same commands follow. So from God's perspective, if you buy your own seeds, plant your own crops, tend those crops throughout the summer and then reap the full harvest for you and your family in the fall, you are depriving The world of justice. How does that work? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Remember, you were stuck with no way out, and then God generously spent himself on your behalf. That is why I command you to do this, says the Lord. Because your freedom, your property, the seeds in your hand and the garden that you're planting, all of that was won for you by God when you were helpless and powerless and dependent on the generosity of another. So all you now own is nothing more than a rental, something you are to steward in love for the sake of others. And when you take a rental and you use it only for yourself, you deprive my world of justice. Wow, do you see that? Do you see how different of a starting place this is for the way that we relate to money and possessions? I mean, what if this whole community began to live like our possessions were just rentals to be used for the sake of others? Uh, What habits might change in our lives? And and what stories might we tell? And, And what kind of community might we lead? All of this kind of comes to a head with this incredible celebration called Jubilee. So eventually, Israel arrives at the promised land, the long-awaited destination of the Exodus journey, and then God divides the land among the 12 tribes. There's 12 tribes in Israel, so God divides up the, the land into 12 distinct pieces of property. It's pretty simple. But after that very simple beginning, it got very complicated very fast. Because if you trace the story from there, some of these tribes end up inheriting more and more land and others' land is getting smaller and smaller because some are becoming prosperous while others are going into debt and they sell off the land to cover their debt. You can't explain poverty easily today and you couldn't then either. When We're talking about an agrarian society where rainfall patterns and faults in the soil and all sorts of things beyond direct human control contribute to which tribe is becoming wealthy and which is becoming poor. So God instituted something radical called the year of jubilee, where every 50 years all land would be returned to its original owner free of charge, no questions asked. It's all right there in Leviticus 25. So in God's economy, you hold everything loosely, everything with open hands. Go ahead and invest, grow your farm, do your thing, own what you want, but possess nothing. You see, Jubilee was God's way of teaching his people to hold everything he had given with open hands, everything to be stewarded temporarily for the sake of others. So to summarize, God's redemption plan for the whole world went through an enslaved, powerless nation that got miraculously freed. Then God gave them a law, a law so radically different that their whole economy and way of being together would be different than any other kingdom ever seen on the face of the earth. That law included gleaning, that the the family farm would be a pantry for the hungry mouth, and it included tithing, the giving of 10% of all that I take in back to God as an offering. That began with Abraham all the way back in Genesis, Genesis, but it was instituted for the nation as a law through Moses. Then there's Jubilee, a radical reset of the economy as a practice of God's grace and a protection against human greed. The law, meaning the boring parts of the Old Testament where your Bible and a year plan always stalls out. The law was set up as a social structure differentiating God's people from every other economy on the face of the earth by the practice of generosity. Or your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. And one of the things that I notice when I read the Torah or the first five books of the Bible is that there so clearly is no such thing as a spiritual life. The compartmentalization of our lives is a modern invention. If you were to ask an ancient Israelite about their their personal life or their professional life or their spiritual life, they'd have no idea what you're talking about. And that was because what's God concerned about? Oh, just every last facet of my being. Just the way I treat my coworkers and what kind of tipper I am at restaurants and how I rest on the weekends and how I react to not getting my way and my habits when I'm grocery shopping and the tone of the emails I send to my coworkers. Oh yeah, and also like prayer and scripture and that kind of thing too. All of that is my spiritual life. And that's important because Jesus, an ancient Israelite, shared that exact same framework that all of life was spiritual. So this brings us to part two, Servant Jesus. And I'm using that terminology because Advent is this month set aside in the Christian year for remembering God's arrival the mystery that a God powerful enough to create all that we know and experience, a God miraculous and mighty enough to intervene to discipline the oppressor and free the oppressed and create a new people, that God stripped himself of all that power to reveal his humble love in the form of a helpless infant. Jesus came to reveal the Yahweh God of power as a humble servant. And it all started with John the Baptist who was sent to prepare the way. His mantra went something like this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now repentance means to change one's mind and go the other way. Repentance is a new awareness. New information has come in that has changed my awareness, so then I order my steps in conjunction with that new awareness. It's a change of mind that results in a change of practice. And John is saying, you've received the extravagant generosity of God, so now begin living in response to the generosity you've received. It's remarkably similar to, remember you were slaves in Egypt, now live in response to the God who set you free. The dots connect from the Torah all the way to the arrival of Jesus. And in his many teachings on money, Jesus seems to center majorly on two themes, mammon and savings, So we'll begin with mammon. Matthew six, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now this word translated into English as money is actually an Aramaic term that goes by mammon, which refers to more than just the number in your checking account. It technically means wealth or riches or property. It means money and possessions. It means your stuff. Like all of your stuff, the the stuff that you have, the stuff that you want, and the stuff you don't know you want yet. It's all mammon. And, And what God is saying is that his greatest competition for your heart is not a moral folly or a dysfunctional relationship or baggage that you have with organized religion. It's your stuff, your mammon. Jesus is drawing a direct connection between our current experience in the kingdom of God and how we relate to and manage our money and possessions. Then comes savings. This is Luke chapter 12, a story Jesus tells. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. It honestly sounds like the first century equivalent to a diversified investment portfolio. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is the rewards of a savvy retirement plan. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And that concludes Jesus' teaching on the American dream. Obviously, I'm being a touch facetious with the story. But what is the story about? It's a cautionary tale about greed. In fact, immediately before launching into the story, Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So what is Jesus getting at with this story and this statement, what is greed? Well, I believe that if we let Jesus, through his teachings, define it for us, greed would be something like this, security by my own means. So to clarify, there is absolute legitimacy to wise savings accounts and rainy day funds and retirement savings and and a plan to get my kids through college. There's absolute legitimacy to all of that and there's also a tipping point And it's a subjective, not objective tipping point that's gonna be different for every person in every different situation when prudence tips into greed. And greed is the pursuit of contentment, safety, rest, security, immaterial things. I can only receive from God. It is the pursuit of those things by material means under my own control. And that makes greed an endless and destructive search. Money is not evil. But the love of money, greed, is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, Jesus is very plainly telling us that he has competition. Money. You cannot serve both God and money. It seems that according to the Gospels, The things that you possess may very well be your greatest opportunity for kingdom fruit, and the things you possess may very well be the greatest threat to kingdom fruit. This is what makes greed so dangerous, is that it's nearly invisible in any present moment in your life, but then in hindsight, it seems to be following behind you every step of the way. That's why Eugene Peterson described greed as a parasite, like that, that medical diagnosis that doctors find so hard to actually find, but the second you get it, you realize that it's caused your whole body to not be able to function properly. Greed is the long con. It's that thing that lurks around in your life and you never see it there until it's robbed you blind. And material possessions, they're like no other false god because they offer us so many things we're intended to get from God. Security, comfort, meaning, significance, status, identity, purpose, pleasure. So if you think that you can follow Jesus and your wealth or possessions are not a threat to guard your heart against, you are asleep to the hold that this has on you and the way that it might be robbing you of the real treasures. So John Wesley's house burns down. Everything he owns, gone. And I doubt there was a sophisticated insurance system through which he could file a claim. And his response to the unthinkable loss of Mammon was, no, the Lord's house is burned down. It's one less thing for me to worry about. Yeah, but Wesley was clearly an extremist, right? I mean, that's such an impractical way to actually live. It seems to me like there was nothing extreme about Wesley's response, if Jesus is the rabbi that we're following. Potentially mature, but not extreme. What does seem apparent to me, at least though, is that if we're being honest, we are the ones who have spent the last couple hundred years of church history trying to prove Jesus wrong about the dichotomy he so clearly drew. You cannot serve both God and money. Upton Sinclair said it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. We are the ones who have tried to invent a vision of bigger barns that does not master us, a task that Jesus said was impossible. Thankfully, though, in all of his teaching on money, Jesus is offering us a whole lot more than just a stinging diagnosis. He's actually offering us a path to walk to freedom and life. Jesus is picking up on Yahweh's instructions for free hearts from the Torah, and he's raising the bar from the laws of of tithing and gleaning in the Old Testament to the practice of generosity in the New Testament all the way up to today. Jesus calls us from tithing up, to generosity. Luke chapter 11. Then the Lord said to him, now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So Jesus is talking here to temple leaders, to those supposedly attempting to order their lives by devotion to God, and he's instructing them on how to purify their internal lives to reflect that deep desire they have for God. But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. So Jesus is drawing a direct connection between our generosity with material possessions and the purity of our hearts toward God. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of herbs. He's talking about tithing but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now Jesus is not saying, you should have done justice instead of tithed. He's saying, do both. This is a call beyond tithing to the way of generosity. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' manifesto, he seems to uh, replace the Old Testament command of tithing with the New Testament grace of generosity. In fact, there is no mention of tithing anywhere in the New Testament. So you are entirely off the hook for that 10%, my friends. (laughs) Enjoy the freedom. We've been set free from the law. So there is freedom we've been given in who and when and how much we give. But Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And the through line of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus taking Old Testament commands and raising the bar. Never once is he lowering it, He's saying, I'm not just commanding you not to murder, I'm saying don't even lash out verbally at your neighbor. I'm not commanding you not to commit adultery, I'm saying don't even entertain uh, that person lustfully in your imagination. I'm not commanding you not to tithe. I'm calling you where? Up, not down, to generosity. It is very, very difficult to imagine that generosity is the one area that Jesus intended to lower the bar rather than raise it. And in fact, as we'll see in just a second, if you take a look into early church history, when people began to practice the way of Jesus, to put his teachings into practice in community, generosity so often exceeds what we read in the Torah rather than diminish it. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. Part three. King Jesus. So Advent is for remembering God's arrival, but it's also for anticipating his return. When Jesus promises to come and reveal that humble God of love as a powerful king who's come to rule, and the final page of the Bible is a redeemed city under the rule of King Jesus without any poverty, need, or want. Generosity now is a preview of that promised future. In the last month, I have been on the receiving end of two different stories of people being provided housing free of charge through the generosity of those within this community. One was to someone within our church family, one was to someone outside of our church family. There is an immigrant family living in the city of Portland free of charge because someone cared to steward their money and possessions like they were just a rental to be used for the sake of others. There is someone that was right on the verge of houselessness in this community that is now living under a roof and sleeping in a warm bed because someone had the audacity to steward what God had put into their hands, like it was a rental to be used for the sake of others. Uh, They became previews of the promised future we're all living toward by, by taking their money and possessions that way. And this week as I prepared this talk, I just got a flash in my mind of a friend that I loaned money to a few months ago. And it was a good chunk of money for me at least. But I did it cheerfully because he had a dream that he was living toward. And this was a way that I could get behind and and help support him in his pursuit of that dream. And then several months later, he, he changed his mind and just shifted course and decided that he was gonna pursue something else. And he never paid me back. And this week, I realized that still bothers me. That somewhere within me, that piece of data has taken up residence and is somehow, however, subtly affecting my view of him in my mind. And as that came up for me, so did the words of 1 Corinthians 13. If I give all I possess to the poor, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And I realized, you know what, I actually don't know the details of my friend's situation. I don't know exactly what the right thing for him to do was, whether it was to come to me and explain, or pay me back, or just, I have no idea. Here's what I do know, I'm keeping a record. And that record takes what I intended to free my own heart and to show love to someone else and turns it into nothing more than noise. Noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And so I, very slow to learn, just opened my hands and began to pray for this person, to pray for forgiveness in my own heart, for freedom from the subtle grudge I was holding, and for the fruitfulness of that which he's pursuing. And you know what? That, too, is a preview of the promised future. generosity, big and small, quick and slow, compelling and completely ordinary, all of it is a preview of the promised future. Your spiritual life from beginning to end in the biblical story is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. Which brings us to part four, living in between. Because the early church then became a community that was tugging at the story from both ends. I mean, they were taking the ancient practices of Jesus and dragging them into ordinary life in communities like this one, but they were also taking the promised future that we're living toward and putting that down in communities like this one. This is what we read in Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. You see, the generosity of the early church became so pervasive that it became their reputation. They were known in the Roman Empire as the people who shared. And that's not a biased look back, I mean, that's verifiable history. In the year 251, in a letter that's been preserved, that was exchanged between the bishop of Rome and the bishop of Antioch, we we'll read that the uh, that the church or the Roman congregation at that time was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons on the generosity of the peasants who called that church their home. That's beautiful, but it was also common. I mean, the first ever conflict in church history happened because they didn't have enough volunteers for the daily distribution of food to widows. It's in Acts chapter six. Julian the Apostate, an ancient historian who outspokenly despised the early church, wrote of their annoying generosity. (laughs) Tertullian, another first century historian, a source of much of our history on the Roman era, wrote of the generosity as the widespread reputation held by the early Christians. Aristides, in Roman political documents, said of the early church, they never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. Tim Keller summarizes the whole thing. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. See, the early church was known for being obnoxiously generous. What's the modern church known for? If the hungry came to the early church and they didn't have enough food to offer them, the whole community would commonly go on a fast until they could feast together. That was the practiced life in the early church. They believed that if a child in a city starves while a Christian has a fridge full of food at home, that Christian is guilty of murder. Basil the Great of the 4th century said, When someone strips a man of his clothes, we call him a thief. And one who might clothe the naked and does not, should he not be given the same name? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat in your wardrobe belongs to the naked, the shoes you let rot belong to the barefoot, the money in your vault belongs to the destitute. I read these sorts of things only to show you the way that generosity was commonly thought of in the church's first few centuries. The members of the early church, they weren't reluctantly parting with their possessions. Material wealth had become nothing more than a rental that they were joyfully spending on behalf of others as an expression of their faith. Picking up exactly where we left off in Acts 4. For from time to time, those who on land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now back at the beginning of the story where we started, we talked about the edges of the field, right? Leave a little bit of your land for for someone uh, to come and harvest for themselves. By the time we get to the book of of Acts, it's just the whole field. It just sold the entire thing that it might be used for the sake of others. The law, tithing, was nothing more than training wheels for the people of God to learn the movements of radical generosity. The biblical trajectory is from the edges of your field to the entire field. It is so much easier to keep our life compartmentalized. right, God, you can have my prayer life, 90 minutes of my Sunday, and my attitude toward my spouse. You can have my confession and my gratitude and my morning meditation, but the standard of living I decided on without consulting you, don't touch that. It's so much easier to keep the spiritual and the material separate, but the scriptures on every page of the story join together what we want to separate. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. So I want to land today just by going through six implications. Uh, Six very practical implications because we don't just want to romanticize generosity in the past, we want to live into it in the present. And six is way too many to remember. And they don't all start with P, so the odds are really stacked against you here. So all of this is not for you, but, but my suspicion is that there might be one thing that God wants to speak to you. So just listen attentively in partnership with the spirit of what is your invitation to me today, God? And I'll move fast. First, you cannot separate repentance and generosity. Most people in the industrialized West, we tend to make this assumption of comfort that, that I am entitled to comfort and that my level of comfort will increase with my age. That as I get older, I'll move into a nicer place or, or maybe get a vacation home or two or I'll move to a nicer neighborhood or a smaller city or a less noisy block or I'll have more in savings. Most of us assume I will upgrade. I'll get increasingly more established and more comfortable. And none of those things are bad. Saving isn't bad, a second home isn't bad, a nicer place isn't bad. There's no issue with any of that on its own. The danger is that most of us make the assumption of increasing comfort without consulting Jesus. And that has more to do with the American dream than it has to do with kingdom dreams. And what it means is that most of us, when we hear the word generosity, we immediately begin to think about what I do with my leftovers. But the difference between us and the early believers is they weren't thinking about their leftovers, they were thinking about all that they had. And so if we're going to become generous, we might have to begin by saying, what assumptions have I made about what I'm entitled to, without ever consulting Jesus? And what have I not allowed Jesus to even put his finger on by those assumptions? So we've gotta be honest with ourselves and with each other about this subtle parasite called greed that can so innocently take up residence in our internal lives. Second implication, you cannot separate the Spirit's power and material generosity. Thomas Aquinas famously was walking with a friend through Rome and the friend was commenting on a gorgeous church building as they passed, we Christians can certainly no longer say to the world, silver and gold, we have none. That was a reference to Acts chapter three, a story when Peter and John heal a lame beggar outside of the temple. And so in response, Aquinas completed the story, but neither can we say to the lame man in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I cannot find a single example in biblical or church history where there was an outpouring of God's spirit presence and power without an equally extravagant generosity. God has just always worked with people humble enough to surrender everything to him and courageous enough to believe that he would catch them on the other side. And so if if you long for a palpable experience of God's presence, for an outbreak of joy, for a community so diverse it looks like heaven, for physical healing and waves of salvation, then start by treating your material wealth like it's nothing more than a rental to be stewarded on behalf of others. I just don't see one without the other. Third, The edges of your field are just the start, but they are the start. The the law commanded that all of Israel tithe. Tithe means 10% or 10% of your income. That's a foundation to build a life of generosity on. So I would just humbly and honestly suggest that if you are not currently giving away 10% of your income to start there. And generosity, as we've said, is to raise the bar on tithing. It is to remove the training wheels and experience the freedom that that we've been intended for. And so I've been helped, and my family practices uh, something called the graduated tithe, which comes from uh, the writing of Ron Sider. His suggestion is this, that if you want to begin to step beyond tithing and into generosity, maybe you could try just creating a standard of living that you think is reasonable for your family and then budgeting all of your major expenses, like your your necessities and your rainy day fund and your savings, and and include a 10% tithe within that budget, and then live frugally and in a disciplined way off that budget. And whatever you've got left over after that standard of living you've set, tithe at least 10% of that leftover amount too. He calls that a graduated tithe, and it can be one way to begin to move beyond tithing and into generosity. Scripture teaches that the local church is the hope for the redemption of the world. So if you think that's a lousy plan, honestly, you should take it with God, not me. It wasn't my idea. But but because of that, I believe in giving to the local church. But honestly, my great fear in, in teaching on this topic is that you would miss God's invitation because you're suspicious of me. That you would think, all oh, this whole sermon is really aimed at some secret debt this church is covering up that they need to pay off, or they're just trying to fill up their Christmas giving campaign, or there's some ulterior motive like that. And this isn't that. That couldn't be further from it. So look, if you don't trust me, or this church, or the church, then give to a different church, one that you can trust, or, or give to an organization if you can't trust any faith community at all. But do not rob yourself of life because of institutional suspicion. Because as followers of Jesus, we're not commanded to tithe. We're invited beyond it. Fourth, generosity is sacrificial. There's this moment in Mark 12 where Jesus is sitting across from the temple, and he beholds something that so opens his eyes, he brings his disciples over to see it. And it's a poor widow who throws in two small copper coins into the temple treasury. This poor widow had put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of her wealth, said Jesus. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I'm struck that the highest praise in the Bible is given for the smallest donation in the Bible. Why is that? is because of this phrase, out of her poverty. If you regularly give, do you give out of your wealth or out of your poverty? By which I mean, is your giving sacrificial or is it mostly unconscious? Because it's that, it's generosity tied to sacrifice that lives at the heart of God. At the heart of a God who gives life to the world, how? By, By a cross. So I wonder if for some among us, you might already be giving, but you're giving in a way that's costing you nothing or little or costing you almost nothing consciously. And I wonder if the Spirit might want to invite you to begin to give sacrificially in a way that you feel, in a way that you need to adjust your lifestyle to make room for, in a way where you need to defer some planned purchase or experience or habit or indulgence, deferring something for the sake of generosity. And I love this moment in the scripture because it levels the playing field. See, the fact that Jesus praised the poor widow means that this teaching is not aimed at the most wealthy among us or the most established. It it means that every last one of us, we can tie generosity to sacrifice in our lives and then give the greatest gift in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven. And all of us can tie that together and then live out of it. Fifth, generosity is both blessing and its formation generosity is blessing remember that you were slaves in egypt we give because of this overflow of gratitude of all god's given us and generosity is formation we also give because it reforms our disordered desires and it aims us more directly at true life and what that means is that sometimes generosity is going to feel amazing and result in incredible stories and sometimes it's just going to feel like you're swimming against the current Uh, a close friend of mine he he uh, once felt like God was calling him to give away $5,000. And he didn't have $5,000 to give away, but he had this prompting from the Spirit that said, hey, if you give the $5,000, I'll give it back to you. So he did. He wrote this $5,000 check that he had no business writing. And then three weeks later, as he was sitting in church on a Sunday, someone he had never met before came up to and gave him a $5,000 check and said, I feel like the Lord prompted me to give this to you so you would know the promises of God are for real. Was it worth it for him? Absolutely. Why? Because it would have been fine. I mean, it would have been really good to just receive a $5,000 check. But the fact that he had given sacrificially before meant that the $5,000 check was more than just a material blessing, but it was a word from God to his heart. And, and, And I honestly had to pray for permission to share this, and I feel insecure about it, and I'm very aware that I'm losing treasure in heaven, but I'm just trying to be completely honest with you. Uh, Several years ago, right in the middle of a church service, I felt this prompting, this invitation from God that my family was meant to give away $20,000 as a one-time gift on top of our regular tithe. And the trouble with that is we didn't have $20,000, nor had we ever possessed that amount of money. And so what that meant is that for us, if we were to do this, it was going to require planning and lifestyle changes and significant circumstantial changes because that was a significant amount for us. And I talked to her over with Kirsten and we decided to go for it. And then the year that followed include, included unforeseen really high medical bills and credit card debt. And our oldest son started preschool in New York City, which just turned out to be the largest expense we had ever had in our lives to that point. And so as a result of that gift, we had to move out of our apartment and move into a smaller apartment with rent that we could afford. And and we had to make major adjustments to our lifestyle. And for the first time in our lives, we had to rely on the generosity of others within our church community. Was it worth it? Yes. Yes. Why? Because we gained greater freedom from our entitlement, we discovered more of the joy of contentment, and we relied on people in the church to be family to us, and they were. Others within our local church family paid our rent one month, they paid for us to fly home to be with family during a medical emergency, and they paid for Kirsten to go on a retreat with some other women that she was journeying with spiritually. Generosity is blessing. And sometimes generosity is formation. It is to partner with the spirit and swimming against the stream so that we can know freedom that hurts a little bit before it feels like freedom. And then finally, and we'll land here, generosity is justice. The early church was primarily filled with peasants who had very little to give, and then it quickly became a place where widows and orphans ate daily, where the poor came to find clothes, and where abandoned infants and the elderly were taken in. What made all of that possible? A community of extravagant generosity a few peasants all bringing their widow's mites, accumulated into that. And our vision and desire as a church is that we would become a place that is teeming with kingdom life. Where the doors of this place are open seven days a week with every different expression of the kingdom. A place where foster children can just be kids and foster families can find support. And a place where the formerly incarcerated can be counseled toward reentry, And where the elderly can be listened to and reminded that they matter. And where the hungry can gather for a warm meal and the houseless can find a change of clothes. And then Sundays would be for the swelling of that building to tell the story that holds the whole thing together. How could all of that be possible? only through a community of extravagant generosity. It is my belief that for any local church community, including this one, everything God wants to do through that community can be supported by the resources from that community. That the work that God wants to do in Portland through Bridgetown is not waiting on some massive donor from outside or a grant organization, but it's waiting on us just to become a people of radical generosity that we might become a people of radical justice. And it's a lifestyle of generosity that sets the conditions for recognizing this God who comes in our midst. It sets the conditions for Advent.